uh, verses 13 through 20 this morning. Um, so just as a, a reminder, we've been going through the book of first as an epistle, the letter, First uh, Thessalonians, which is written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica. I've been super encouraging uh, to them so far. And now we're going to read. Uh, it's almost towards the end. This will actually be our last week of studying this because we'll transition. Uh, we're getting Lily Civic back in the pulpit. Uh, she got sick. We missed her uh, last month. But yeah, we can woo for that. That's great. Um, and so Lily will be here next week, and then we will kick off Advent the weekend after, or the Sunday after that. So it's our last um, uh, sermon in, in Thessalonians, and it is, yeah, it's a doozy of a text. So let's, let's dive into it here. Uh, this is verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. God, we are... Thankful for your word. And you invited, you asked the church in Thessalonica to encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with truth. And I pray that same prayer, that same command for us today, that we would be encouraged. That we would not, on this Sunday morning, have burdens heaped on us. We would not... Come into church and hear more law or more, go do more to be better. But we'd hear the gospel. We'd hear again and again and again about Jesus. Father, may you pierce our hearts, convict us of sin, yes. Correct our living, yes. But we do so because of the relationship we have with you through Christ. And Father, may that sink in deeper and deeper this morning. Father, we're grateful for the ways You have invited us to be a church to one another. You have given us opportunities to fellowship, to to have fun together, but also to serve one another. And I pray as we head towards a difficult time of year for many, where money is tight, relationships with family and friends are sometimes strained, or the strain of those relationships come to the surface this time of year, may we see one another in our hurts and our pains and our grief and our wounds. And may we not be turned off, but may we move towards. Because you have moved towards us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There are so many things that I love 
about being a dad. We've got four young kiddos. Uh, we're not so young anymore, 7, 9, 11, 13. And I love all, all the things. I love reading to the kids at night. I love dance parties in the car. I love wrestling on the couch with the youngest. But right up there near the top of the list is getting to coach some of their sports teams. For the past, I would say, probably six or seven seasons, both fall and spring, I have been coaching my third daughter's soccer team, and it's just been incredibly fun. And though we are on our third team name, we started as uh, the Lemurs, uh, then we went to the Scary Ravens, and then we got these hot pink uniforms, and now we're the pink Pumas. It's a lot of the same girls, a lot of the same. We get a crew of eight or ten that return every year, every season. And the rhythm is that we play a game on the weekend and we practice during the week, one evening during the week. And at every practice, there are drills that we do. But also, depending on what we struggled with on the previous game that weekend, we will oftentimes do a drill unique to that week where we focus on one facet of the game we need to improve. For example, our team this year is playing in a new age bracket, and the girls on average were about a year older. The girls we were playing against were about a year older than our crew, and they were outmatching us pretty regularly, outmatching us physically, and in essence, our girls were getting kind of pushed around a little bit out on the field. So at one practice, two or three games into the season, we spent a good 20 minutes just getting them used to running into each other, teaching them how to box out with their bodies. We place a cone on the ground, and then one girl would be in charge of not letting another girl who is behind her touch the cone. So we're having them scoot into each other, throw their hips at each other, not shove people, but learning how to appropriately be physical in soccer. Some of them had a hard time understanding this, which is understandable. They've been told their whole life, like, don't, you know, don't, you know, do exactly what we're telling them to do. So we even had the coach and I. We're out there shoving each other around on the soccer field. And if we didn't even have a ball for this drill, so it's just cones and people shoving each other with their bodies on the soccer field. And at one point, I looked around and I just laughed, thinking about... If you were walking by the sidewalk right by the the field and you just saw a bunch of girls giggling their hearts out and just knocking each other to the ground with no soccer balls, what would you think is happening here? I mean, those adults seem like they're in charge. They have whistles, but we're unsure if this is a sport or this is just full contact, you know, wrestling going on. But the parents, the ones that, you know, sit on the sidelines who were there the previous weekend, they totally understood. You see, through that drill, this hyper-specific learning of a skill to use your body, it made a ton of sense for us in our context as they watched the previous weekend our girls get pushed around on the field. And in a way... The strangeness of that would how it would have felt to an outsider, yet the total, you know, how it was so normal to us who were part of the soccer team was a little bit of a window in to Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica. See, we've talked a lot about this over the course of, the, of this epistle, but when we read the Bible, we are not just invited to think about what it says, but we're also invited to ask the question of why is it saying this? 
So Paul has spent the bulk of this letter heaping encouragement and affirmation onto these people. And they seem to be doing great in their walk with Jesus. And he is trying to be wind in their sails. And then we get to this fourth chapter. It starts with a little bit of encouragement, the verses leading up to the ones that we read. But then all of a sudden, Paul shifts to this very specific topic. What happens to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? And as you'd expect, Paul addresses this beautifully. The question has apparently come up with the church in Thessalonica because one or more of the fellow believers has died since Paul left. And based upon what Paul says in verse 13, they're concerned about what is going to happen between now and Jesus' second coming. So why does Paul address this? Asking the questions why. The first answer, it's a two-answer, two-part answer, but the first answer is that he wants to reassure people who are feeling discouraged with the truth of the Bible. If you're brand new to church, the arc of the story, the main dots on the timeline are that we, as a creation, were created good. Creation was created good in Genesis 1 through 3. We see the story of creation being created and God saying it is good. And then we see the fall happen where Adam and Eve both sinned and sin entered into the world. Then we see the effects of sin all through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. Then Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross, was resurrected from the dead. And he initiates, brings in this new kingdom of God, which begins... But then he also promises what? He promises that he's going to come back a second time. And that's where we are in the timeline here. The kingdom of God has started, but is not yet to full completion. And they're asking the question, if Johnny at our church was a Christian and he died, we know Jesus is coming back, but where is he now? More than likely... Paul had taught them something about the resurrection of the dead, but was forced to leave the city before he could give them the full teaching. But his basic response to them, to their concern, is to tell them, I promise you there's no reason to worry. Paul tells the Thessalonians not to grieve over the dead like the unbelievers who have no hope. It says in 4.14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have already passed. Paul points the Thessalonians back to the resurrection of Jesus as the foundation of their hope. Jesus was raised from the dead, and those who are in Christ will one day be raised from the dead as well. And Paul continues... He explains, he, as a pastor to them, explains what will happen at the Lord's coming. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They have a question, and he gives them a biblical answer. And friends, this is incredibly important. Like, yes, there are things that, you know, we are asking questions about with now on how to be, you know, a Christian in the workplace, how to uh, be a, a, a God-fearing, loving husband or wife or father or mother or friend or community member. But it also is a part of us to ask the question of what is going to happen to us. 
And Paul is comforting those people of the church, and we too can be comforted. When we think about our own passing, our own future, but also we think about those. The people that we have loved, that knew Jesus, and have passed from us. Passed from this world. And so there's three things that we know for sure. And we see this in, these, this in the teaching of Paul from here and, first, I mean, and Philippians 1. And the three things we know for sure is that it is far better than our life on earth. When people who are in Christ die here, we don't know exactly what happens. And too often people in my role get up at a funeral and kind of cast this vision of where they are and what's going on. And I'm like, are, are you sure? Like, I'm not sure the Bible says that exactly. But we do know some truth about what is happening. The first being that it is far better than our life on earth. The second is that we are with the Lord. But the third that Paul is alluding to that he's talking about here is that this is not the end of the story. Again, there's another dot on the timeline. We're still waiting for Christ to come back. And what happens when a loved one dies is they're with the Lord. It is far better, but it's not the end of the story. I'm about to tell you an absurd illustration, and, but I'm going to go with it. Um, whenever we're talking about this stuff... It's kind of like talking about the Trinity, like we can make some errors on how we're explaining it, but I'm going to take a risk here to explain this from an absurd illustration. Our family, for my entire life, has grown up going from the Atlanta area when we vacation going to the South Carolina coast. At this point, I have probably made the trip, no exaggeration, 60 to 70 times. I've driven the same route for the last 15 years of that, as, as an, or 18 plus years as an adult, and it's like five turns. What we do is we go out to I-75, we bang a right and go south, we hit Macon and go left uh, onto I-16, we get almost to Savannah, we turn left on I-95, and then a couple more turns, and we're where we like to go on vacation to the coast in South Carolina. It's a beautiful place. Uh, when we get there, I absolutely love being there. We ride bikes. We go to our favorite hole-in-the-wall restaurants. We play on the beach. It's just a beautiful place that we all love to go to. Well, if you've ever made this drive, if you've ever been on I-16 between Macon and Savannah, you know that once you get outside of Macon, which is not necessarily like a, a you know, metropolis um, of a city, once you get outside of Macon, you've got four exits with gas stations and restaurants, and then you are just on your own. Like, it is just you and the open road until you get to I-95, out except for, with the exception of, a little town called Dublin, Georgia. Anybody ever been to Dublin, Georgia? You've driven through it. Uh, that You have not hung out there, I promise. And nobody... Goes to Dublin is like, that's where I am going to vacation for a week. But when I see the exit, there's a sign like a welcome to Dublin. I know we are going to stop here. And I know that for two reasons. One, our kids are usually ready for a pit stop of some sort. But I know that this is probably the last place I can get gas. And there's a Zaxby's in Dublin where I can get a kick and chicken sandwich, a Coke Zero, and the good ice that comes with those Zaxby's drinks. And so that Zaxby's, that Dublin exit, I am 
thrilled to be there. Like, I am excited. It's been a lull after making, but I know that Dublin is coming. I'm thrilled to be at that, at that exit where the Zaxby's and the gas station is. But I want to be clear, that is not the destination. Again, no one is sitting here in Atlanta. No offense if you're from Dublin. Some visitor here today is like, he's ripping on my hometown here. But I've literally never heard anyone say, where are you? I asked them, hey, where are you going to go for spring break? And they're like, we've got this really wonderful spot. Dublin, Georgia. There's a Zaxby's. I think there's a gas station. We can't wait to go there. But however, for me, it is a place that when I see that exit, I am excited to be there. And I know, more than anything else, that it indicates that I'm heading towards my final destination. So putting this concept even a lot more eloquently, N.T. Wright says up here, he says, whatever life after death is, being with Christ, which is far better, being in paradise like the thief, think of the thief on the cross, that Jesus said to him, you will be with me in paradise. That is heaven. The many rooms we go immediately, that is the temporary place. The ultimate life after life, that's not a typo, the ultimate life after life after death is the resurrection in God's new world. Brothers and sisters, the truth of where we are heading is incredibly important to our well-being and our encouragement in where we are now. So as I read this, yes, I'm comforted by this reminder, but I also couldn't shake the question of why did he bring this up? Like, yes, it's helpful, but what happened here? In order to answer this question, we're going to take a ride with Miss Frizzle. Anybody knows who Miss Frizzle is? Fan favorite, uh, the Magic School Bus. And so, Miss Frizzle, absolute legend of a teacher. Miss Frizzle's going to take us, when we put that up there, when, my, when I think about Miss Frizzle, I think if she is taking me somewhere outside of my local context to somewhere else. Sometimes that's the bottom of the ocean. It's not where we're headed today. Today, we're going to go back to the ancient Greek culture of how, of what was happening in the culture of when the people of this scripture, of the audience here, what they lived in. So you remember the early church, like our church today, was set in a place in time in history. It was not, you know, a commune out in the middle of nowhere. They lived amongst people that were not a part of the church. A culture that the people lived in, but instead of things like social media and Netflix... They had voices of the culture that weren't necessarily the same as ours, but their main voices for them were coming through poetry or plays, theater. People would attend outdoor readings, debates and performances from philosophers to uh, poets who were uh, doing not just like, you know, four-line sonnets, like pages of poetry, much like we watch TV or go to concerts. So in addition to what the Bible said about things like death, they're also hearing from other voices outside of the church. And these voices have an enormous influence on the society they live in and in turn had the potential 
to influence the church as well. I'm going to give you three quotes from three primary voices in their lives. The first one is a guy named Theocritus, who's a Greek poet. And he says about death, he said, Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. And also, just let me name what you're thinking. Last week, we're talking about shooting water balloons, unsuspecting customers at the quick trip. Today, we're quoting Greek poets. Head on a swivel. You guys have got to be ready. Don't put us in a box here, Redeemer. (laughs) Hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. This is a guy, I don't know how to say his name, A-E-S-C-H-Y-L-U-S, a famous writer of Greek tragedies, which are plays of a man once dead... There is no resurrection. Catullus, this is a Latin poet, says, Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, we must sleep in endless night. So Paul knows that the message that they're hearing is not in alignment with the Bible. So when he says, when he speaks to them, he is recognizing that the outside message that they're hearing, which he says here, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. He's talking about the other folks outside of the church. You don't grieve like them. He's recognizing that he needs to correct the wrong voice that they're hearing. And it doesn't mean that everything about culture and context is bad. The message from this this sermon is not run away. Because it's recognizing there's beautiful things even about that culture 2,000 years ago that contributed to society today. Theater, sculpture, academics, incredible contributions to math. Geometry comes out of this time period. They developed astronomy. Educational systems that still influence how our kids are taught today came from this culture But we have to recognize that not everything we're hearing in the context in our society aligns with truth. And if we do not filter out the lies, we will be, we'll have a watered down version of what it is to follow Jesus in our hearts, which should be encouraged at the truth, will be deceived and discouraged by the lies. Romans 12.2 says that this exhorts us to be proactive by saying, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And though today, in 2023, we may not have the same voices. I don't hear Theocritus quoted a lot at our church. We are hearing messages every single day. And this doesn't mean we shut ourselves off from society. We live in the world, but not of it. It does mean that we are filtering those messages through the context, through the lens of the Bible. We're letting the truth of the Scripture inform our opinions of what we're being told, of the opinions that are being told to us from movies, from politicians, from TV from social media, instead of the flip of that, instead of letting those opinions inform our view of truth. And there are a million examples of this. And I don't know for your specific life what it is, the lie that you're struggling to believe, but I was talking to someone recently 
who was talking about how they were having trouble finding a therapist. It's a friend from another city for their 17-year-old boy because of body image issues. They said that he said that almost every junior and senior boy at their school was going through something mentally because they're receiving this message that they're not muscular enough. They're not big enough. So his son had, had changed his entire diet, was losing sleep, had grades had gone by the wayside to get his body to line up with the message that he was receiving of what is good enough. So what do we do with that? The Bible, we have sympathy, we love, but we also speak truth. That the Bible has a completely different message on where that young man's worth and identity come from. The definition of success in society, for a lot of folks, what we're hearing, it means a certain amount of money in the bank account, a social media that's filled with incredible experiences. But the Bible defines success so much differently, doesn't it? A life of serving others. A life of intimacy with God. A life of intimacy with others. A life that is not simply accumulating experiences or money or stuff, but is sacrificing for the people around us. And more than anything else, and Julie, you can come on up whenever you're ready, the message we all are receiving is that in some way or another, we are not enough. At some point this week, you heard that message or you said it internally. I'm not good enough. I'm not skinny enough. My skin's not clear enough. I'm not funny enough. Not obedient enough. Not wealthy enough. Not educated enough. Society's favorite word in all of history, not just our context, seems to be a four-letter word, more. It says you need to be more fill-in-the-blank. But the message of the gospel, they apply truth to the message we're receiving, just like Paul was doing back in his day, is that in Christ you not only have more than enough, friends, you are more than enough in Christ. When society says more, we recognize that and say that's a lie, just like Paul's saying it's a lie that we have no hope. And we apply the scripture and say those three words that Jesus said, It is finished. Jesus didn't say, now I've done this, so go do more to earn love from me. Now I've done this, so you rest in it. You have enough and you are enough in Christ. So may we be a people at Redeemer who are feeding ourselves so regularly on the diet of Scripture that we are able to name and answer the lies that we get fed and respond with truth. More than anything else, may we have a hope, a hope for eternity, but also a hope for here and now that is informed by the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful that in Christ, our questions of are we enough, have been answered. God, we are so thankful that in the Scripture we have not only a guide, 
but we have nourishment for us to regularly experience, to chew on, to digest what is true so that we can identify and turn from the lies that we receive as well as the lies we even say to ourselves. And Father, may we walk in that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.